We'll go ahead and dismiss our kids. Yes. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And you all can turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to cover a lot of ground in three broad points today. Because we'll find in, uh, in this chapter that Jesus is still dealing with uh, a religious bunch that has um, made up their mind that they're going to do away with Him. As soon as He made it into the temple, He cleared it. They had uh, determined that they had had enough of Jesus and they were going to find a way to be rid of Him. And uh, at the end of chapter 11, we saw where um, the authorities came and asked Him, by what authority do you do the things that you do and say the things that you say? Authority was a big deal to them. Because they felt like the religious leaders actually believed and felt like that they had authority by some means from God. But Jesus very quickly set all of that straight. And the way that he did that in chapter 11 was he says, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you if you can answer me this. And he asked him, where did, where did John get his authority? Did it come from John or did it come from God? And they knew that they had a problem because if they said if it came from John, the people were going to turn against them because John was a popular guy. But if they said it was from God, then they had no reason for what they did to John. So they chickened out and said, well, we don't know where John got his authority. And Jesus said, well, neither am I telling you where I have mine, but I can tell you this. And he tells them the story about the wicked tenants. He says, the father has sent... <laughs> He sent a lot of people to collect what was his, and you kept killing them and running them off and beating them up. And finally, the father sent his son, believing that they were going to respect the son. And all you did was say to the son, hey, if this is the heir, if we do away with the heir, hey, we will have all the authority. Of course, Jesus told it in a parable, and they knew that he was looking them in the eye and calling them out. And uh, that's when it really got under their skin and they said we've got to get rid of this guy and then he carries on they carry on in the strangest fashion in this first little section that we'll look at together uh, the Herodians and the, and the Pharisees come together against Jesus which was a crazy idea the Pharisees couldn't stand the Herodians they were a part of Herod's household and they were out of power at the time. Pilate was running things in the, in, in the neighborhood. And they were out of power. And they wanted to do anything they could to get back in the good graces of Caesar. They eventually would and it would all fall apart. But they didn't like the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't like them. But they both hated Jesus more. So they decided they would come and try to set a trap for him. They do this. Actually, two times. And then on this third passage, we find that someone comes to Jesus not to set a trap, but he's looking for verification. He's looking for validation for his life. In all three of these instances, we learn something. Because Jesus doesn't waste it. He, he goes to the effort to try to help us understand more about God, more about ourselves, and what Friday was going to mean. See, we're just a few really short hours 
about 72, maybe 86 hours away from the cross. And everything that Jesus is about now is to help people understand what's going to happen on Friday. Because everything that God intends for the world is fulfilled on Friday. Everything that, is, that God intends for your life and for mine, Jesus knows is just a scant hours away for Him to fulfill the will of the one that sent Him and to complete His work. So as we listen today, <clears throat> please understand that what Jesus is teaching these people in this day is the same lesson that He has for us. We may know God deeply because of who we are and because of what He has provided us and for the vast motivation that He's given us to live our lives. He reveals all of this to us and it becomes crystal clear, formulated, condensed down into a one singular act that He fulfills on Friday at the cross. So let's look at it. Verse 13 says, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. The they in this is the Sanhedrin. This is the guys that really want to keep power. They really want to be able to tell people the way to God or to shut the gate to God is what they were best at. They are the ones that are attacking Jesus through these surrogates or through their representatives. So they send the Pharisees and the Herods to Jesus to trap him in his words or to trap Jesus in his own words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful, that you don't care what anyone thinks. Actually, Jesus cares what people think. He just doesn't care what the Sanhedrin thinks or the religious types. Nor do you show partiality, but you teach the way of God truthfully. Now, that's a pretty good resume right there. I mean, they're really building up Jesus to where whatever he says, he can't back out of because of this. We know that you tell the truth. We know that you don't, you don't care what anybody thinks, meaning that, that the truth is unvarnished. It's not just for some. It's for everybody. Nor do you show partiality the same way. But you teach the way of God truthfully. You understand better than most the truth of, of, of what God wants in the world. That's pretty good. I wish somebody could say that about me. He says, then they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Hey, this is a big deal. This is not the first time this question had come up, I'm sure. And this is what happens. Okay, if you say, oh, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar. No one should pay taxes to a, to a bunch of uh, pagan uh, heretics. Well, then what's that going to do? The pagan heretic's going to come put his boot on your throat, and that's going to be the end of you, which would have been okay with these guys asking the question. But if you say, yes, it's okay to pay the tax, then the zealots in the crowd, and there were many, as we will find out on on Friday, there were many in the crowd that would have taken Jesus and carried him off himself for saying that you should pay it because they in no way believed that you should pay this tax at all. 
So you've got Rome that says, yes, pay the tax. You've got the zealots that say, no, you should never pay the tax. And they're asking Jesus this question, trying to trap him to say, you know, yeah, you gotta, you got to pay or you got to not pay. So you see the problem that he's in. And for most people, this would be a problem. But this is where the lesson for us comes in. And I want you to listen. But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? <laughs> Jesus sees right through it. He knows it's a test. <clears throat> and so when there's a test, there's a choice. There's a choice to be made on a test. You can either answer correctly or you can answer incorrectly. But you're doing the answering. He says, bring me a denarius to look at. Okay, he's in the temple. They didn't keep they didn't keep Caesar's money in the temple because it had Caesar's face on it. That was the same as idol worship, and you didn't bring an idol into the temple. But somebody had one in this crowd. So he says, bring a denarius to me <laughs> to look at. So they brought the coin, and he says, whose image and inscription is on this? And they replied, Caesar's, and rightfully so. So Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And give to God the things that are God's. And it says they were utterly amazed. Now why? Why did he say that? In fact, in fact, when he says give, the Greek here says to pay back to Caesar what is owed to Caesar. Certainly Caesar should get his tax. Look at what Caesar's providing. you got roads anywhere in the world. It's pretty much, there's pretty much peace in the world. Although it's Roman peace. <laughs> you establish peace by uh, flowing the streets with blood if you don't do what they say. But it's peace. They provided a government. So yeah, if uh, Caesar wanted money for that, then give him money. Besides, his picture's on the thing. His image is on the thing. And it says this belongs to Caesar because everything in the world they believed and Caesar believed belonged to Caesar. In fact, they saw him as God. I mean, they called him God. So pay back to Caesar what's Caesar's. But then he says also pay back to God what is God's. So the question becomes for everybody standing there and for everyone sitting here and for anyone that has ever read this, we have to say, what of me belongs to God? And then what of me belongs to someone or something else? Meaning, what of me am I willing to give to another that actually I should be giving to God? Every day of our lives, we wake up deciding, what is my life going to mean to God? What part of me do I owe to God? In fact, you could even wake up every day and remind yourself that in the beginning, when God created the heaven and the earth and He created you, it says that what? In the image of God, He created who? Mark. In the image of God, He created me. If God placed His image upon me, He must place some level of value upon me, but what part? What part does God value? 
Well, the part that looks like Him. My life. My soul. What I value. The things that I want in my life. My hopes, my dreams. All of those things that come from a place that only God can invade. He says, I want, I want that. I want you to love me. I want you to trust me. I want you to live by the way that I've chosen for you to live. I want you to offer everything back to me that is of worth to you. Sure, there are things that others may want. Give them the things that are going to perish and pass away. Give them the things that moths will eat and that rust will destroy. But give me the things that can carry you into eternal life. Give me those things. And let Caesar have the rest. You could say that this is about a lesson in government. God ordains governments over us. Romans teaches us that in chapter 13. But if that's all that this was about, Jesus would be a very poor teacher. This is about who you are and what you are letting God have. Now, who looks into the depths of your soul and determines whether or not you're being truthful and honest about giving back to God what is His? Well, only God and only you know that. Do you ever go there? I think, I think what Jesus is saying to this crowd, today's the day you got to make up what you're going to give back to Caesar and what you're going to give back to God because Friday's coming when everything that God has designed for your life and desired for your life, you're going to know. You're going to know on Friday and especially you're going to know on the Sunday afterwards exactly what I'm saying to you. Are you, willing, are you going to be willing to give me your life? Because that's what God wants you to do. It's the gospel. Then they go on, the Sadducees and the resurrection. So there's, there's two religious parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were quite liberal in their day. They believed all sorts of things that we believe. They believed that there was, there was actually a spirit in, the, in a man and that that spirit could live forever. Uh, they believed that in the resurrection of the body. So Jesus was a Pharisee for all practical purposes. Uh, he just wasn't Pharisaical about it. And then there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in most of what was the Old Testament. They just believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't read anything else. They did not believe in a bodily resurrection. They they didn't believe in in a human spirit. When you were dead, you were dead. And so this is a real sticking point between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But today, the Sanhedrin, the ruling party, the ruling committee in, in, in Jerusalem at the time, they said, why don't you Sadducees go and see if you can trap him too? And so they do. So the Sadducees, in verse 18, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man, if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, <clears throat> that man should take the wife and raise up offspring from his brother. This was a liverite marriage because a woman had nothing outside of her marriage 
If she was a woman and never married and was a virgin, her father took care of her till the day she died. Or someone in the family did. But if she married and the husband died and she had no child, then she was going to be penniless, homeless, nothing. She would be out on the street. And so Moses allowed for this. He said, if this happens to a woman, then the brother of the deceased husband is to take her and have a child by her. And then that child is to care for the mother. It's called a Leverite marriage. It was part of the law. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her. He died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise... Whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Now get it. This is not a question about marriage and the resurrection. This is a question about the resurrection. These guys, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So why would they be asking this question at all if you don't believe in the resurrection? And it's only to trap Jesus about the resurrection. But this is a pretty good example because it comes out of the law. And so what would happen at that time? And Jesus answers them. Jesus spoke to him. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? Listen, you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. He's basically saying you're kind of ignorant to what you're even talking about. You don't even read the whole Scriptures. So how do you expect to know anything about a resurrection that you don't even believe in? It's kind of crazy when you think about it. And then he says, and by the way, you know nothing of the power of God in this, and I'm about to explain it to you. And we get to discover some things in this too. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read the book of Moses? Now, this is the book that they only read, the book of Moses. And he's asking them, haven't you read it? In the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Is he not the God of... He, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. And he leaves it at that. Now you see, no one knows that Jesus is the Son of God in this episode that we're looking at. They just see Jesus as a good teacher. So how is Jesus supposed to know anything about the resurrection or to who we are to be in the presence of God at the resurrection? Well, he studied his word. That's how he knows. And these poor guys haven't. So they know nothing. So forget about angels and forget about marriage. I do believe this, I think, because Jesus teaches it. When the, when the resurrection does come, all of you that are married won't be married anymore. Some of you are saying, ah. and then others of you are kind of, shucks. <laughs> come on now. But he says we're going to be like the angels, and I don't know what that means either. There's a lot of extra biblical ideas about the angels not having... Uh, the, the biological equipment to, to consummate a marriage. 
like that's all there is about marriage. Okay? But I think what he means here is we're, we're, that they're going to be like the angels, meaning that there's going to be a singular focus about your life, and that is the glory of God. And that all the satisfaction that you've ever imagined in this life that could be met through, your, through the body, through, a, through a, the best of marriage, is, is going to be surpassed to a point to where that, that's, a, that's not even a memory anymore. All that there is is God and God glorified. I think that's what he means in this. He says it's going to be like the angels. Nobody's going to be given in marriage. There's not going to be anything about that that's going to satisfy us at all. It's just going to be the praise and the glory of God. That's just a side note here. But what Jesus is saying to these guys is, you've got no business asking me a question about something that you know nothing of. And this is what happens. When you have an agenda and you approach the Bible with an agenda, then it's quite easy to to give foundation to your agenda and to miss God. You can miss the character and nature of God simply by approaching the Bible for answers that you believe you need for a position that you have. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, there's, a, there's a translation of the Bible out that's called Good as New. I'd never heard of it before until recently. And it's a Bible that has been translated in such a way as to not offend anybody. I mean, that's, they didn't translate it for that reason, but that's what I say it does. It's just a translation that's meant not to offend anybody. And I've tried to imagine reading the Bible and not having to confront myself as I read it. Because most of what I know and most of what I know about God and myself and, and the growth that I experience spiritually comes from the fact that I have to face some cruel realities about myself and actually some pretty hard realities about God as He deals with me in my broken self. But this, this, uh, this, uh, whoo, this doesn't do that at all. Because it has an agenda. They are looking at the Word of God and they're saying, we, we need a Bible that is going to speak to everyone and not offend so that they'll come to God. Their motives are pure. Let's bring them to God. But, but man, that's a, that's a narrow road, right? Jesus made that pretty clear. It's not a wide road. It's a narrow road. So I'm just going to share with you a couple of passages that, that this one website brings out. And, and I'll quote it here. It says, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman, but because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Uh, that, was, that was then. This is now, it says. The same text from the, from the good as news says this. Some of you think the best way to cope with sex is for men and women to keep away from each other. That is more likely to lead to sexual offenses. My advice is for everyone to have a regular partner. Do you hear the difference? Okay, here's another one in the same passage. The Revised Standard Version says this, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain single, uh, as I do, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to aflame with passion. And the good as news says, If you know that you have strong needs, get yourself a partner, better than being frustrated.
Okay, that's a good laugh, huh? Yeah, that's that's out of a that's a that's a that's someone that's that's paraphrased scripture. But my point is this: the agenda is so that it doesn't offend. And look at the doors that it opens up. Marriage is not mentioned when Paul mentions marriage at least three times in that. Um, and I could go on and on with the various ways that it's that it's bastardized scripture. And you understand what that means? That it's, that it's, it's taken every bit of the substance and meaning away from it. When we approach Scripture and we want it to fit our needs, then that's what we do. And that's what the Sadducees had done. They had, they had approached Scripture to fit their particular idea about there being no resurrection, bodily resurrection, and that there be no life after death. And Jesus says, how ignorant can you be? Because you haven't read the Scripture. And even the Scripture that you have read, you have read incorrectly. He says, but don't you see that the place at the bush, because they didn't have chapter and verse, they just knew that you went to the scroll where the place, the incident at the bush, the burning bush, where God comes to Moses and He says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, meaning that these guys aren't dead. I don't, I'm not a God of, of dead things. I'm a God of living things. And so understand what you're doing. Understand your word. And the lesson for us is this. You must read this word as the word of God, not just containing good advice for life. This is not a handbook for living, as you will hear some say. God doesn't didn't write a handbook. This is His Word for your life. And if you leave it on a shelf, you might as well find room for yourself right there next to it. Your life will mean nothing. Your life will have no value. Your life will have no purpose because you will misunderstand the very essence of who God is. He has given His Son's life so that you may know Him and love Him and dwell in Him. And it begins for you. Understanding that you were created as His image and that this is His Word. I don't know how else to say it. You cannot make this into your image. You are made in God's image, and this is His Word. It goes on. One of the scribes approached. Now, the scribes, they were like the lawyers. If you had a question about what this Word said, you went to a scribe. They spent every moment of their waking day studying Scripture, they studied under different rabbis that were great teachers. Gamaliel and Hail, and there was others that, that existed. They studied under these guys. They didn't want to make a mistake with this. They were sincere. They just didn't understand. You, you, once Jesus is on the scene, there's some redefinition. There's some new understanding that wasn't available before. So he comes to Jesus 
And he approaches and he says, when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked them, which command is the most important of all? This was a question that burned in their hearts and minds because of this. There's a lot of people that would come to them. They wanted a concise way for them to understand exactly what the will and purpose and presence of God was in their life, which every one of us should want. We should want to know in in the most concise way, what is God doing here? What does He want? What's it going to mean for me? how, How am I going to recognize it? How can I notice it? This was a burning questions for those who were who were deep followers of Yahweh. And they should be questions that burn in us as followers of Jesus. So Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, O Israel. This is from Deuteronomy 6. He's quoting scripture. The most important is, listen, O Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is actually not quoted from the Hebrew text. It would have been from the Aramaic text of his day because it includes and your mind, which was something that had been included into this culture. And Jesus quoted it as being important and necessary. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important and then all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, why do you think he says that? How do you saw somebody answer? You ever read that? We're going to have a quick Bible lesson here. Huh. You can, you can see with your eyes. You can see with your mind, can't you? And that's what Mark's referring to here. When he perceived with his mind, you could see with his mind that he had answered correctly. Don't just run by words, y'all. Figure out why in the world they, they're like that in the, in the Scripture. When he saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. You know, uh, there was another place in earlier in Mark where the rich young ruler comes and he says, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, what does the law say? And he quotes him a few of the commands and he says, Jesus says, that's right. And he says, oh, I've done all those things. And he says, you got one more thing to do. He says, you know, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you come follow me. And he left sad because, because he was very wealthy. And he didn't want to lose everything that he had just to follow Jesus. And so Jesus later tells him, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get in the kingdom of heaven because it's so it's so attractive to have it, the things of this world. And Jesus says to this guy, you're so close to the kingdom of God, meaning that 
You are so close to getting the full picture of what this means to love God and to love your neighbor. Pay attention because Friday's coming and you're going to understand what God really, really means in this, this love business. You're going to find out what loving your neighbor's all about, what loving your enemy's all about, what loving God is all about if you'll just pay attention to me. Our motivation for life. Look, our identity is the image of God. We're made in His image. And we should give back to God accordingly to that image. Our understanding of God comes through the Word of God. We have to treat this not as a handbook, but as the very Word of God and to live by it. To not add to it, to not take away from it. And our motivation in life is to love God and to love our neighbor which may very well be our enemy. That's our motivation. If you want to know, how do I love God? How can, how can I do that? What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, the, the, this guy says it doesn't mean religious activity because he says that, yeah, that's greater than all the sacrifices and burnt offerings that you give. And Jesus doesn't correct him. So it must mean that that part of his answer is true too. It's not the religious activity. It's not what we know. It's not what we're able to do. It starts right here again. It always comes back to who we are and what our heart says. The highest loyalty and commitment to God is that we express our love for Him as best we can. It's not going to be perfect. When Jesus was on the seashore with, with Peter after this whole episode on Friday and the resurrection, in fact, many days later, and they're fishing and Jesus calls to them and they go to the bank and Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? And he says, do you agape me? Do you love me with everything? You're willing to sacrifice everything to show your love for me. And, and, and Peter says, Lord, you know I love you like a brother. And Jesus says, well, feed my sheep. And he asked him a second time, Peter, do you agape me? Are you willing to sacrifice and lay down everything for me? And Peter says, God, Lord, you know, you know that I love you like a brother. And he says, take care of my lambs. And a third time he says, Peter, are you willing to just give everything for me, to lay down your life for me, to love me unconditionally no matter what? And and Peter, with great distress in his heart and almost tears in his eyes, says, Lord, you know my heart above everything else, and you know that I love you, but it's like a brother. And Jesus says, that's okay. Go take care of my sheep. He's not asking for perfection. He's asking for honesty and then to go do something with that. That's what he's asking for. You can't honestly say that you love him and then sit in these chairs or sit anywhere and not do anything about it. You just can't. It's a lie. It's a lie to say that you love him and you don't join him in what he's doing in the world. Jesus came to do the will of the one that sent him and to finish his work 
If we love him, we're going to be doing the same. And that's what this means. And that's when he says, you're so near the kingdom of heaven. He's saying to this guy, if you can just put all of this into practice, you'll be there. Of course, you can't put it into practice until you know Jesus. That's why Friday's so important, see? You can't know what God's up to when He says, I've come. How's it go? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, meaning will not die, but will have eternal life. If you don't know that that's true, then you can't really live out of that love. But look, you're sitting in this room and you know it to be true. And so you must live out of that love. Or else you're not telling the truth. And you say that you love Him, but it's a lie. It's a lie. The first time I realized that I was being disobedient to God when I ran from Him for 26 years to avoid pastor in a church is when I realized one day I told I was I was praying and I said that I loved him and I realized I didn't because I wasn't doing what he had directed me to do I have only one way to show my love for God and I only have one way to show my love for Jesus and that is to do what he has asked me to do anything else is a lie And that's the question I leave you with today. He doesn't leave, this isn't just stories to see how clever Jesus is with a bunch of people that want to get rid of him. He's a much better teacher than that. He's a much better savior than that. And he most certainly is a better Lord than that. Do you hear what I'm saying today? This is where it all is. To live out His image. To live by His Word. And to love Him sincerely. And to love Him with the actions of your life. Let's pray.